So we're looking at a metal filing cabinet with small index card-sized files organized alphabetically, it seems, mm-hmm. right? Asif Manvi here, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Accessories, agriculture, airplanes, altitude animals. Okay. Fans, fashion, father, flying. Miss America, Moby Dick. So Moby Dick was her fictional mother-in-law. Big as a whale. If you get in an elevator with her, you better be going down. (laughs) Before Joan Rivers, before Roseanne Barr, before Lily Tomlin or Whoopi Goldberg or Sarah Silverman or Amy Poehler, before any of them, there was Phyllis Diller, a true pioneer for comedians everywhere, and daughter-in-law of Moby Dick. When she wears a white dress, we show movies on her. (laughs) Phyllis Diller was an absolute legend, and that's why the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History keeps her gag file in storage. It's a pinkish-gray metal filing cabinet with 51 drawers, full of jokes, like these. Her dress size is junior missile. (laughs) And each drawer... A thousand jokes per drawer. Is that right? Yeah. That's 51,000 jokes. 52,569. Wow. (laughs) Once a month, they shove her through the Holland Tunnel to clean it. When Phyllis Diller passed away in 2012 at the age of 95, she left behind more than just her gag file. She left behind a legacy of being one of the first women to break through the gender barrier in stand-up comedy, a fact she reflected on in a 1986 interview with Terry Gross on WHYY's Fresh Air. What was your routine like? It was very different because I had no idea what I was doing. Therefore, I was terribly different. There were no female comics around. I was it. I didn't know that. But I I had no precedent. I had never seen anything excepting what I had seen on the early days of television. Black and white, like Milton Berle, Maury Amsterdam, Art Carney, uh, all men. Phyllis Diller didn't just choose a career path people didn't think women should choose. She behaved in a way people didn't think women should behave. She was outspoken and confident and brash. She wore zany clothes and wigs. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth about what I'm wearing. I used to work as a lampshade in Las Vegas. Now, you may think my legs are funny. in this world who's absolutely crazy about my legs. Colonel Sanders. Describe the way you will typically come out for for a performance. Like a maniac. Dressed silly, with silly hair, funny little boots, little gloves. All clowns wear gloves. Even Mickey Mouse. The little teeny short gloves and little short dress and that's it. It's a funny persona. There are three categories. Comedienne, comic actress, comic. Now, comic implies stand-up, responsible for your own material. You work in one, in front of a curtain, alone. No props, no music. See, this aloneness and just talking is what a comic is. Oh, I am descended from a very long line my mother once foolishly listened to. This podcast has been tricky for me. 
Because of all the stuff the Smithsonian has in its entertainment collection, I only get to pick 10 iconic objects to talk about. There's a lot that doesn't make the cut. But Phyllis Diller's gag file? It's basically Phyllis Diller's brain. And who doesn't want to spend an afternoon inside Phyllis Diller's brain? Now, a lot of our listeners are probably your age or younger and Mm -hmm. probably don't know who Phyllis Diller is. Yeah, when I started here as an intern, I had no idea who she was. Well, if you didn't know who Phyllis Diller was, the gag file is probably the best crash course you could ask for. The woman I'm speaking with is Hannah Bredenbeck Corp. Now, she's the American History Museum's Phyllis Diller gag file expert. Yeah, that's a thing. Even if she didn't exactly know a ton about Phyllis Diller when she first started. Yeah, when I started here as an intern, I had no idea who she was. Um, and I sort of gleamed Have you ever heard the name Phyllis Diller? I don't know. Probably, maybe even mm-hmm. not. Pretty you knew much. she was a comedian. Yeah, I knew she was a comedian just from working here. I knew we had some stuff from her and her mm-hmm. joke file. But that was pretty much the end of my knowledge of her right. <laughs> at that point. How old were you? 27? 27 years old. You don't know who Phyllis Diller is, really. You're handed 52,000-plus jokes and said, okay, categorize these. Where do you start with something like that? Like, it's just a huge pile of jokes. They're all sorted in drawers, so there was already a little bit of sort of organization Mm -hmm. by category. So I basically just pulled open drawer one. I numbered them all so we knew what order they were in. Did you do this all yourself? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, you didn't took, have any assistance or help nope. or anything? It took me about four months to scan them all, working sort of working full-time on it. And you transcribed them all as well? I did not, luckily. Oh, all right. <laughs> the Smithsonian has a transcription center where volunteers come, log on, and help us transcribe whatever we put up there. How many people transcribed the jokes? It was somewhere around like 1,200 people Wait, helped us what? out on the project. 1,200 yeah. people? We posted them on the transcription center. They went live, uh-huh. all my scans, and then we had volunteers from around the world type out what it said on the card. They're at their home mm-hmm. computers, wherever they are yep. in Brazil or yep. Paraguay. Would you believe that I once entered a beauty contest? I must have been out of my mind. I not only came in last, I got 361 get well cards. <laughs> Even with 1,200 volunteers around the world working together, it took three weeks to transcribe all 52,000 of Phyllis Diller's jokes. But now, all her routines from the early 60s to the mid-90s have been preserved for all time. I I don't want you to get the idea that I have given up on my looks. I will never give up. I am in my 14th year of a 10-day beauty plan. So how annoying have you become to all of your friends and family? <laughs> After I, the project sort of had finished and everything had been transcribed, I was going home for Thanksgiving, and my dad was like, you better come ready to tell some jokes. And I had, I could pull up, you know, a little set of jokes from, from the Phyllis Diller wait joke a minute, file about wait Thanksgiving. A you have turned into a little Phyllis Diller, <laughs> like you're doing her act. I try not to. I can't. I definitely can't can't do it justice, but I can I can pull up jokes from it for have any you, occasion. What's your favorite joke? Do you have My, a favorite joke? I do have a favorite. And go. When God was handing out chins, I thought he said gin, so I said, make mine a double. <laughs> and that's how they got this. <laughs> <laughs> Phyllis Diller's career lasted decades. She hobnobbed with celebrities and traveled the world, performing with some of the biggest male comics in the world, like Bob Hope. Just what are you doing? 
comparison shoppings. How could you ever have married her? Well, it was a mistake. I proposed during a power failure. And you've had one ever since. What's your favorite joke? My favorite joke is when I was born, I was so ugly, the doctor slapped everybody. <laughs> That's actually a great joke. It is fantastic. (laughs) Richard Buskin worked with Phyllis Diller to write Like a Lampshade in a Whorehouse, her autobiography. When I actually was put in touch with Phyllis and started out, you know, talking to her about, well, you know, we all these fantastic celebrity stories you can tell. She said to me, no, that's not what this is about. This is about the struggle. This is about me being completely homeless at the age of 38 with a deadbeat husband, four children, one of whom was mentally challenged, and going on stage for the first time. Wow. If Phyllis Diller's story is just the story of a comedy pioneer defying expectations, it's totally worth the telling. But inside of this metal filing cabinet, I found a lot more than just a lifetime of jokes. I found a lifetime full of, well, life, like real life. And she was truly destitute. You know, as I said, her husband, Sherwood Diller, was really a waste of space as far as she was concerned. I mean, Mm. he just didn't work, didn't do anything. And they ended up with their possessions in paper bags walking the streets. So she was actually homeless. She was actually homeless. The in-laws helped to look after the kids at one point. That's when, you know, friends used to say to her, you should go on the stage, right? You know, a lot of people get that kind of advice. But uh, they were saying it to her, and she finally decided just to take the plunge. She'd never done it before. So it's an odd thing to go into stand-up comedy as a way to make money. <laughs> like, it's, right. it's, it's not the usual trajectory, you know? And, and as a woman in the 1950s. Exactly. It's like, it's like she did give herself a very steep mountain to climb, you know? Now, Phyllis, let's find out some more dope about you. <laughs> Are you married? Yes, I've uh, worn a wedding ring for 18 years. Here's Phyllis Diller on You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx in 1957 a few years into her start. Now, fellas, what do you do to break up the monotony of housekeeping and taking care of five small gorillas? <laughs> well, uh, I'm really not a housewife anymore. You got five kids and you're not a housewife? I beat the rap. You mean your kids came through with push-button controls? <laughs> How is it you're able to get away from housewifing? I'm an entertainer. When well, did you arrive at this uh, decision? Well, I was much too old. You mean... Phyllis Diller wasn't just in entertainment for the money, though. She was inspired by a book that she read and reread called The Magic of Believing by Claude Bristol. She told me that for two years, when she had a job at a radio station, that every day on the bus to work and on the bus home from work, she'd read this book. It's a fairly slim volume. And she would be reading it all the time and it took her two years to totally buy into the philosophy because it is about believing in what your future is going to be it's it's visualizing it projecting Mm -hmm. and what she showed me when we were doing the book she pulled out this notepad from the i think the mid-1950s and there were all these things that were hand drawn so for instance there was a swag bag with a million dollars written on the front Mm -hmm. and she said to me 
I made a million dollars, of course. There was, a, I remember, a drawing of oil rigs. She said I had shares in some oil rigs. There was a drawing of her name in lights on Broadway. She was on Broadway. There was a drawing of herself starring on TV. She had her own show on TV. I said to her, did anything that you projected not come true? She said, no, it all happened. Just ahead, Phyllis Diller plays a harpsichord piece she wrote herself. And we meet Fang. I feel pretty, oh so pretty, and so witty and pretty and bright. And I pity girl with a And so, it's, in reading her jokes and, you know, delving into this story a little bit, what, what's occurred to me is that she herself, the Phyllis Diller that we all know, that we all remember, seems like it was a character that she created. Yeah. Would that be fair? It absolutely was. That's very fair because, for one thing, she portrayed herself, she'd always wear that kind of house coat. And she'd portray herself as this bedraggled housewife who, you know, was flat-chested, ugly. And in fact, she was anything but flat-chested. Mm -hmm, she actually posed mm -hmm. for Playboy. They ended up not, you know, uh, uh, not publishing those photos. Because but, she was uh, not flat-chested enough. She was not flat-chested. You know, I, I shouldn't even be out tonight, actually. I, <coughs> I have this small chest condition. <laughs> Certainly by the time I met her, she'd had 17 cosmetic surgeries, all different parts of the body. She said never anywhere more than once except her nose, which she accidentally broke again. And she was actually, by that point, a very pretty older woman. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the self-image that she would be conveying on stage. Embarrassing. You know, I work a lot of places where they have a dance floor, and one night a gentleman asked me to dance and then danced three sets with me backwards. <laughs> All the time complimenting me on my figure. <laughs> it seems to me that she had to tamp down her own sexuality, her own femininity almost in order to be accepted as a comedian. Now, how much of that do you think was a calculated decision of, of how to succeed in this business as a woman and how much of it was just a reflection of her own self-image? I don't think it was a self-image. I think it was completely calculated. You know, mm. when she first went on stage at the Purple Onion in San Francisco, women comedians up until then had mainly been in the clubs, you know, with blue comedy. And here she is trying to go mainstream and she would regularly have people in the audience shouting out, you know, heckling her and saying, go back to your husband and kids. Right. And so she found over time that the self-deprecating humor is what worked. It's what made people laugh. It's what disarmed the audience and disarmed the, the sexism. Is exactly. That if she was full of herself, if that was her persona, it wouldn't have worked. So she clued into that pretty early on. Right. And she ran with it. Do you think that part of her longevity, maybe, and her appeal was that women related to her in a way that they never had with male stand-ups because of what she was talking about? 
Yes. And, you know, they could identify with a lot of the issues that she was joking about. You know, the, the troublesome kids, the lazy husband, and she wasn't threatening to them. And she turned that whole thing on its head, right? Like, you know, a lot of comedians at the time were like, you know, doing this sort of take my wife, please kind of stuff. Right. And and she was kind of doing that with her husband and sort of turning that, which was very revolutionary, I imagine. Absolutely. It really was. I mean, she was way ahead of her time. You know, the lights have gone out with dirty old Fang. The last time there was a gleam in Fang's eye, there was a shortness electric blanket. <laughs> dirty old Fang was another character in the Phyllis Diller universe, a fictional husband to match Diller's own stage persona. I remember in The Purple Onion when I was searching for material, trying out new things every night, and I had an, a bit about having had an accident in the car, his car, of course, and how I was calling home after the accident to tell old Fangface. Because the minute you're in trouble, he's the, the heavy. And I worked on it and realized that I was on to something because this idiot that I portray on stage has to have a husband. And he's got to be even more idiotic than I. That's the way. Well, of course, I, I can't begin to tell you how stupid he is. I asked him to spell Mississippi one day. He said, uh, the river or the state? <laughs> he thinks Roe versus Wade is about two guys in a canoe. Phyllis Diller was clearly a cultural icon, representing a watershed moment for women and for comedy. But how did the Smithsonian wind up with 52,000 of her jokes in a filing cabinet? She sends a letter. She, she sends, sends a, a letter. letter to the secretary of the Smithsonian, and she sends a, a resume with it. She said, just in case you don't know who I am, right. as if we didn't know who she right, was. Exactly, yeah. And the letter made its way down to me. Dwight Bowers is curator emeritus of the entertainment collection at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Evidently, Phyllis Diller heard that the museum had collected Archie Bunker's chair from the show All in the Family. So she decided to see if they were interested in some of her things. You get the letter, she's offering the things. Then you say specific things, unspecified things. It was an offer the Smithsonian couldn't refuse, so Dwight Bowers hopped on a plane, flew out to Los Angeles, and went to Phyllis Diller's home in Brentwood. There, he got a tour of her things, in a wig room and her costume closet. And how do we get to this remarkable filing cabinet? She said, I've got this thing upstairs, largely an attic. Mm -hmm. It was an office that she'd converted out of the attic. And this was at the center, and she said, this is my joke file. Mm. And my gag file. And what did you say? I said, can we have it? <laughs> so then she absolutely insisted that I try on this certain dress. She said, madam, this dress is so sexy, it'll give your husband ideas. I said, why, does a brain come with it? <laughs> she said what many of the women in her audience were was thinking. And what was that? Sending up the idea of being the perfect housewife, debunking the idea of the perfect woman. As Betty Friedan was doing it with her philosophy, right. Phyllis Diller was doing it with jokes. So she was kind of blowing apart this idea of the Ozzie and Harriet myth. Yes. What she was saying was the same thing that was in the feministique. Mm -hmm. it was, they were both looking at Vogue magazines at the time and taking that as the image of women that they were debunking. Right. Betty Friedan was doing it in her way. 
and Phyllis Diller was doing it in her way. Dwight came back from Los Angeles not only with Phyllis Diller's gag file, but also a ton of costumes and wigs. Most of them are now housed in storage at the museum. So this is our bust of Phyllis. I, I've never, I don't know where that came from. I've never seen that. This is Heidi Rothbart. She's a comedy manager who has a particular interest in the museum's Phyllis Diller collection because she used to be Phyllis Diller's assistant. Well, yeah, this is really interesting. This cast of her hand. Do you remember ever seeing this? I did not see I don't remember seeing that. Well, that is definitely her hand. Oh, my God. That is really weird. Okay. That's going to haunt me. <laughs> Seriously. Heidi started working as Phyllis Diller's assistant when Phyllis was 62. And Heidi was... 21, 22, yeah. What kind of relationship did you have starting out? Was it a maternal sort of relationship? What was that like? She was the person that influenced me more in my life positively than anyone outside of my parents. So she was my boss. Sometimes she was maternal to me. Sometimes she was my friend. And she was my mentor. Heidi followed Phyllis all over the world for years. She had a unique perspective on Phyllis Diller's work habits, and she was a key player in making the joke file what it is today. She wrote about 85% of her own material. She did buy from other comics at times, and then she would work it, and then all those jokes and all those things would go into the infamous joke file. (laughs) Now, were you tasked with organizing that joke file? Well, I was one of them. That joke file had been around for a long time. And if Phyllis had to do any kind of a show, if she had to do a personal appearance somewhere, even if she wanted to update her routines, she'd go, what is topical right now? And she'd go look in that joke file and she'd pull something together and she'd work on her show morning, noon and night. (laughs) I'm an authority, of course, on plastic surgery. I got into it early and have done a lot. I've had so many things done to my body. When I die, God won't know me. I think today, probably there is a, well, maybe there's still a struggle between that element of how feminine, how how much, uh, you know, like, can you be in terms of as a woman who is also funny? Uh, you know, is it possible to be beautiful and also funny at the same time? Phyllis always believed that it was not possible to be glamorous and beautiful on stage and be funny. And there are Hmm. a lot of stand-up comics right now that are very pretty, but they mock themselves on stage. If you think about some of our our stand-up, female stand-up comics now, they're always kind of putting themselves down just a tiny little bit because that's funny. And, and again, if you if you think about some of these stand-ups right now, but off stage, yeah. they're probably quite beautiful and whatever. It's hard. People don't want to see beautiful women on stage because maybe they just can't focus. They can't focus <laughs> on the funny. They're focusing on the beauty. I mean, do you think that that's changing today? You know, men have never had to sort of tamp down and make themselves less attractive or less sexual or whatever in order to be funny, right? Do you think that's changing for women now? I think if there is a very pretty stand-up on stage, she is going to play herself down because that's funny. If you think of the funniest, funniest stand-up comics, I mean, to this day, they're not glamour women on stage. They want their funny to shine through. I think Phyllis in those days had to do something over the top very similar to Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga Mm -hmm. is a classic musician, incredible musician, but for some reason in the beginning of her career, she did wild, outlandish things on stage and people noticed her. But Phyllis did the same thing. 
She had wacky hair, wacky clothes, wacky boots, wacky gloves, and in her mind, she looked like a clown, and clowns make people laugh. And she was so outlandish and funny that she made it to Carnegie Hall in five years. Now, can you imagine any young female stand-up comic or male stand-up comic getting to Carnegie Hall in five years? Virtually impossible. It takes, you know, a long, long time. So she didn't realize that the men hated her. They did? Oh, my God. Now, why why did they hate her? Why? Because she was a female in the 1950s and the 1960s, and she was advancing. And how dare a woman? She should be in the kitchen cooking, right? Mm -hmm. She shouldn't be on stage. And that's how they felt, even though you know they loved her. In this Me Too moment that we're in now, do you feel that comedy is still a predominantly male world? I think that there are more and more female stand-up comics, but it is harder for a female stand-up comic to get ahead than male stand-up comics. But it's changing. And why is that? You know, it's such an interesting question. Maybe there aren't more female stand-up comics wanting to do it, even though it's much different than even 20 years ago. The bottom line, it, it is harder for females. People have to have shticks, if you know what I mean. And also, a lot of people didn't realize Phyllis was a, a master pianist, a master mm. concert pianist. And her character on stage was Dame Ilya Dilia. And she came out with a costume that weighed, oh my God, 85 <laughs> pounds and a tiara. And the first 15 minutes was all pantomime with the conductor. It was hysterical comedy. And of course, mm-hmm. the audience thought that she, right, Phyllis Diller's going to play the piano. Really? Come on. Oh, well, Phyllis, besides being a terribly funny lady, she plays the piano. Did you know that? Would you play one for us? But Phyllis Diller could play, and she did. In 1969, she played the harpsichord on Liberace's TV show. You'd never ask. I just happened to have my piano with me. I brought it. You brought your own piano? Yes, it's parked right behind yours. <laughs> Phyllis, do me a favor for me. Huh? Play that number you wrote. She wrote this herself. It's beautiful. It's called Phyllis's Fugue. Oh, how nice. Okay. Phyllis Stiller's legacy as a comedian is all here, neatly organized in this metal cabinet at the Smithsonian. But I can't tell you how great it was to open those drawers and find way more than just 52,000 jokes. I mean, what a life. So I feel that when I die, now I don't know where you're going to go, but I'm just going to be dead. Uh, I will regret my death, I know that. Because I know I'm going to miss me. I don't have to have the promise of anything more. This life has been so wonderful. Special thanks to Phyllis Diller for not only being funny, but also being organized enough to have a gag file for me to find. Next time... I'm looking at a a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. This is amazing. It was worn while he was training for the Rumble in the Jungle. When I got to Africa, I had one hell of a rumble. I had to beat Tarzan's behind first for claiming to be the king in the jungle. Lost at the Smithsonian is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our executive producer and editor is Ellen Weiss. Technical support from Robin Wise. Fact-checking from Danielle Roth. And scripting by Alex Berg. 
Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford and John Delore. Original theme music by Casey Holford. Our supervising producer is Jordan Bell, and our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, Eric Jentz, Ryan Lintelman, John Troutman, and Laura Duff, for all their help in making this show. And special thanks to WHYY's Fresh Air for sharing Terry Gross's amazing interview with Phyllis Diller, heard on NPR. Lost at the Smithsonian is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. I'm your host, Asif Manvi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Asif and Facebook at Asif Manvi. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening.